0: Hello, everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you.
1: Our Common Ground pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages. On March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not.
0: There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love.
1: So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you?
0: A hundred (laughs) percent, Oh my
1: God, I'm there.
0: (laughs) So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 11, The Dueling Club. Harry woke up on Sunday morning to find the dormitory blazing with winter sunlight, and his arm reboned but very stiff. He sat up quickly and looked over at Colin's bed, but it had been blocked from view by the high curtains Harry had changed behind. I'm Casper Terkyle,
1: And I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week's story comes from our friend Mark Oppenheimer from the podcast Unorthodox. And we're very excited to have Mark on the show because Vanessa has a bit of an intellectual crush on him.
1: It's true. Whenever I don't know how I feel about something Jewish or in the Jewish community, I just Google if Mark has written something about it, and that helps me figure out how I feel. So thanks, Mark.
2: You know, one of the funny things about doing a jew themed podcast for an audience that seems to be about half non-Jewish is that you never know how to deal with Jewish stereotypes. There are a lot of things that we laugh about as inside jokes among the family of Jews that might make non-Jews uncomfortable. For example, what do we do with the stereotype that Jews are more intelligent than other people? Now, those of us who are Jewish have enough ignorant or stupid relatives to know that that stereotype is pretty misguided. On the other hand, Anyone who's Jewish has probably also gotten one of those chain letter emails from an elderly aunt about how Jews are less than 1% of the world population, but have won 25% of Nobel Prizes or something like that, or how Jews are responsible for some absurdly high number of the vaccines that have been discovered. It's never clear what the point of these emails is exactly, but it has something to do with taking pride in the excellence of our fellow Jews. Of course, it's unclear exactly why we should take pride in the excellence of people we've never met and whose achievements we're not responsible for. I'm reminded of the apocryphal story about the argument between two Jews about the question of Jewish superiority. One of them says Jews are nothing special. The other one says, yeah, well, Jews have won 783 Nobel Prizes, to which the first guy responds, yeah, but how many of those prizes went to you? In the end, it's understandable why any people that's been bullied over the years would have some stake in thinking of themselves as excellent. What those aunts and uncles with their crazy emails are saying is that we may get kicked around a lot, but maybe it's just because we're misunderstood or other people are jealous, just like the bullied kid on the schoolyard. And they're saying that we should take a special pride in rising above our oppression. And that's true. At the same time, of course, I don't think the measure of excellence is Ivy League degrees or income or Nobel Prizes. When I talk to my daughters about excellence, I talk about generosity and decency and kindness, Those are the things that I want them to be excellent in. But, you know, those things are harder to quantify in chain emails.
1: Casper, what I really like from Mark's story is that I think he's pointing to the fact that of the things that we actually value, so kindness, compassion, humor, whatever it is that we value in one another – Those things aren't quantifiable in terms of whether or not you are excellent at them. We quantify grades because we can. We quantify speeds and running because we can. But there's no rubric for what makes you kind, for what makes you
0: good, for what makes you thoughtful. And in this chapter in the jewelling Club, we see different levels of magic being displayed, right? People are learning how to become better wizards and, and witches. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are becoming more excellent human beings. It'll be interesting to see what people are trying to become excellent at and how we should judge them for it. Vanessa, it's time to announce the winner of our 30-second recap challenge over the last 10 chapters. And, you know, this is data that's really quantifiable. And I'd like you to announce who won this time. <laughs>
1: Casper, you excelled. You won this round of the 30-second recap challenge. Congratulations. Yes. I am excelling in grace.
0: You're saying all of this through clenched teeth. (laughs) No, it's (laughs) through my
1: smile. (laughs) I'm excited to start round two of book two, Clean Slate.
0: Yes, let's do that.
1: And you start, my friend. Are you ready to keep excelling? Let's go. On your mark. Get set go.
0: So Harry wakes up in the hospital wing and um, tries to find Ron and Hermione in the common room, but they're not there. And Percy suggests maybe they're in a girl's toilet, so he goes and finds them. They're talking about the potion, polyjuice potion, but they need some more things. So in Snape's classroom, Harry creates a distraction. Boom! Explosion. Um, Hermione slips in because she doesn't have any records, so she'll be fine. Um, and then um, then there's a dueling club poster, and um, they all go and um, uh, Gilderoy and Plum, he's wearing a Plum outfit. And then there's a Snake, and Harry controls it, and everyone's scared, and they think he's the Arab. Slytherin because he's a pastime.
1: Well, you got about halfway through the chapter. Good work.
0: You know, I just I wanted to get that plum detail in there. <laughs> it's really important to me that we know what he's wearing. All right, Vanessa, let's see how you do. Are you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one.
1: Harry, Ron, and Hermione finish the polyjuice potion or get most of the ingredients for the polyjuice potion. And also there's a dueling club. And in the dueling club, Lockhart and Snape duel. And then Harry accidentally looks like he's trying to kill Justin, but he wasn't. And then um, we find out that he's a Parseltongue. And then um, and then um, Justin gets um, petrified and, um, and Harry gets blamed for it. And everybody thinks that he's the heir of Slytherin. He gets sent up to Dumbledore's office.
0: Oh, you still have like two seconds.
1: Oh, and Dumbledore's office.
0: We've been doing this for seven months, and I don't (laughs) feel like either of us are getting better.
1: I actually think I'm getting worse. (laughs) I don't know why. It's not that we don't care. Please tweet us your theories as to why we keep getting worse at this. Or please feel free to tweet at us how to get better. We'd love it.
0: So, Vanessa, our theme this week is excellence. And I'm wondering, where did you see it show up in the chapter?
1: What I really noticed this chapter, I feel like this is one of the first times that we're spending a lot of time with Snape, at least in a long time. He is in this key potion scene in which Harry blows up Goyle's cauldron. And then he's in this big dueling scene. And in both of these scenes, he's incredibly capable. You know, all these students get injured in the explosion, and he immediately heals everyone, which I think is the first thing that you should do as a teacher. And then he tries to solve what's happened and figure out what it is that went wrong. So I think Snape, at least in this moment, is being an excellent teacher, at least in a moment of crisis. He's an abusive teacher, (laughs) and that's terrible. But he handles this as a real pro.
0: And he's super competent throughout the chapter, really. You know, in the dueling scene, he is able to hold his tongue while Lockhart is making a fool of himself and then does this amazing Expelliarmus charm, right, and disarms Lockhart completely, and then also is able to control the snake that Draco conjures. And we see how good of a wizard he is, you know, how talented he is in potions, how talented he is as a jeweler. He's an excellent wizard.
1: I feel like if you take his potions class, you're going to learn about potions you're going to be humiliated throughout the way but he's a rigorous
0: teacher i mean even goyle who is not known for his skills certainly not in the potions room creates this immaculate potion which when it explodes and goes all over draco's face and all over other students they all start swelling and it's proving that goyle's potion is really good you know we we have to give snape some credit here even if we don't really like him he knows how to teach a potions class
1: So what does it mean though, to Mark's point, what does it mean to excel at dueling, to excel at potion making, and even to some extent to excel at teaching, but to not be kind, to be sort of – not sort of, to be abusive? Like is Snape an excellent wizard? It is I think that excellence is about being the best that you can be. So figuring out, discerning through whatever process you discern what it is that you want to be in the world, how you want to be in the world. And then excellence is about being the very best that you can be at that. Snape is supposed to be a teacher and a wizard. Is he excelling at what we think he has set out to be?
0: Well, we know he wants revenge, And he's really excellent at revenge, you know, in two ways. One against Lockhart, who is making a buffoon of himself, of course, but he's really belittling Snape. He calls Snape his assistant. You know, he says, Snape is here to help me. Can you help me put students into pairs? And being very kind of degrading. And then, of course, Snape gets his revenge as soon as the actual dueling starts. But he also gets revenge against Harry. You know, we see how he he really put Harry on the spot in his dueling with Draco. And he really makes a fool of Harry or allows Harry to make a fool of himself in front of the other students and only interrupts when it's no longer in his control. When Harry reveals that he's a parcel mouth, he doesn't know that, of course, at the time. So there's something about he's, he's been excellent at getting revenge both on Lockhart and Harry.
1: I just wonder if excellence is not necessarily a good thing. You can excel at really bad things.
0: And, you know, we hear that a number of times about Voldemort in Ollivander's one shop. He says, well, he was terrible, but he was great. Uh, And I think there's something about the value neutralness of excellence, perhaps, and that excellence can be frightening. It can be not a good thing.
1: I'm wondering if Lockhart is a good foil for Snape and if we're using you know what we've just sort of discerned which is that you're excellent at something if you are thriving at something that you value lockhart really values being the center of attention But I think that more than being the center of attention, Lockhart wants to be the object of affection, the object of adoration. And he fails at that. He is very not excellent. He's not an excellent teacher. He's not an excellent dueler. But more than that, he's not good at being adored, at least not once people get to know him. Right. Maybe he's excellent at being adored by, like, a public when you just read his books. So he's an excellent sort of PR guy. But once you get to know him up close and personal, that excellence really falls away.
0: And I think that's interesting to think about excellence that way. Like, what do you need for you to be excellent at something? Because Gilderoy needs adoring fans and constant attention. But if you look at someone like Professor Sprout... You know, there's a moment where she she cancels a class. She cancels a herbology class because there's snow, but also because she has to put on scarves and hats for all the mandrakes. And she's worried that if she lets students help with that, they're not going to be as excellent as she is. And she says, this is important because it will help with the petrified students. And so I'm going to do this on my own. So that raises another question for me. It's like, sometimes your own excellence depends on other people's cooperation. And sometimes your excellence is really just about your skill. That adds a whole layer of complication to how you can be excellent when you're depending on other people.
1: The other thing that's interesting about Professor Sprout is that she usually is an excellent teacher. And so I think that if the stakes weren't so high, if there weren't petrified people upstairs and a petrified cat upstairs, she would have had the students help her scarve and hat the mandrakes. But she needs to be excelling as an herbologist more importantly and more urgently than she needs to be excelling as a teacher in that moment. And she gets that. And so she switches what it is that she excels at and chooses herbology rather than teaching in this moment.
0: And I think we see Snape doing that, as you said, you know, in the classroom, dealing with the emergency before trying to find the culprit of who created the explosion. And we never see Lockhart do it. And I think that's you know a real nice sign of excellence is that you can switch on a dime when you see the situation has changed and you need to figure out, oh, this is now what's needed. Lockhart is always going to just try and be the center of attention until his last dying day, sadly.
1: I love that point, Casper. And I think that sometimes – We value excellence in people who are only excellent at one thing. We'll justify like, oh, he doesn't have great social skills, but boy, is he a brilliant astronaut or whatever, right? Sometimes somebody is so good at one thing that we don't mind that they can't shift on a dime. But Lockhart is not in a profession where that is okay. nor is he so good at any one thing that we can justify, oh, he's not a good teacher, but boy, is he a good self-promoter right (laughs) that's like not enough but i think that's an excellent point is that part of being like an excellent overall human being is being able to shift and prioritize different values in different situations and we want a certain malleability and flexibility in one another
0: it does really amuse me that the only time the word excellent shows up in this chapter is when lockhart says excellent when all the students are quiet in the dueling club and it's like oh the irony gilderoy oh the irony There is one point that I want to explore with you, Vanessa, and I'm hoping you can help me figure this out. There's the moment when Harry is speaking in parcel tongue and he doesn't realize he's doing it. And suddenly the whole room changes and is looking at him with suspicion. And he and Ron talk about it afterwards. And Ron is like, it's not a good thing, right? This is Salazar Slytherin's gift. Hermione is freaking out too. And Harry is excellent at speaking in parcel tongue, although he has never practiced, he's never learned. What do we do with the things that we're excellent at If we're unsure, if we want to be even able to do it.
1: That reminds me of a story of a friend of mine who was an exceptional runner. And, you know, you run around the schoolyard as a kid. A coach noticed that she was very fast and had good form. And then throughout high school, she kept being pulled in to do cross country. And it actually became a very detrimental thing in her life. Running had been something she'd loved to do, but because she was excellent at it, she was constantly sort of professionalized in this way around it. And it took away her love of running. And so I do think, I think in order for you to excel at something and for it to sort of be excellent for you, you have to love it. And otherwise what happens is my friend stopped running. So that skill has completely fallen by the wayside because she was pushed to do something in a way that she didn't like to do it.
0: Yeah, I think it raises this question of, you know, the talents that we have are only Good for us if we choose them. And if they're chosen for us, they can be dangerous. And I think Harry is going to have a real struggle to figure out how to use this innate gift that he has especially when we compare it to, you know, Harry's flying skills because he gets on that broom for the first time and he feels empowered. He has agencies free while this parcel tongue skill is something which has power over him, especially how other people talk about it and make him feel about it. And it really makes him doubt his own identity. So excellence isn't always helpful to us if we don't have agency over it.
1: Yeah. And if we don't have agency over it, I feel like it's not excellent It's talent or it's aptitude. I will say, in defense of Parcelmouth, Harry does save Justin's life in this moment. I mean, I guess Snape could have controlled the snake anyway, but I wonder what we do with squandered talents. If you're talented at something that you really don't enjoy, is it squandering by, like, not working on it? Would my friend have been better off if she decided to try to love running anyway? I don't know. You know, you're given certain gifts and maybe you do have a responsibility to take full advantage of them up until the point where they're really harming you.
0: I don't know. I think maybe the call that we have is to try it out. But I really don't feel we should be pressured to use the skills that we have if they're not ones we want to use.
1: So what if it's not a skill, but it's a gift? For example, if you're wealthy or famous, then we hold you to a standard of like, well, you have to do something good with that. You're a basketball player and you make $40 million a year and certainly nobody goes into basketball for the philanthropy. But we admire LeBron James for trying to do so much good with the fame and wealth that he has acquired. I judge people who have fame and wealth and don't try to do anything good from it. Like you've acquired these amazing things. You have these gifts use them.
0: Yes, but I think it brings us right back to where Mark started with his story, which is that excellence can come in many shapes and sizes. But really, I guess what I'm going to judge people on is more the values that shape their decisions rather than the excellence they have at certain skills. So you could be fabulously excellent at selling people subprime mortgages or destroying the environment or even become fabulously wealthy as a basketball player you know, that's one thing, but what I'm going to judge you on is why you're doing that in the first place. Like, I'm going to judge the motivation.
1: Yeah, I think that this has to do with talent and skill and values and where we want these things to be intersecting. And again, to Mark's story, you know, there are also cultural norms around excellence. I think that In order to even attempt to be excellent, what I'm taking away from this is that you have to know yourself and you have to know your values and you have to know your talents and you have to make some choices. Excellence is a series of choices and is a lot more complicated than I think I realized it was. Yeah. Aspern, we are now going to transition from doing sacred imagination to the Jewish practice of Havruta. And to remind our listeners, Havruta is a several hundred-year-old Jewish practice where two people are reading a book together. Usually it's the Talmud. And the idea is that two people together can learn everything that they need to learn if they are willing to have an open and rigorous discussion amongst themselves with the book. And so the way that we will do Havruta is that one of us will pose a question But the person who poses the question is also supposed to pose a potential response to the question. And then the next person will give another response to the question. So the idea is that it isn't any one answer that is right, but it is the aggregate of all of the answers that are right and that we can really just go on and on because there's an endless depth to these things. So, Casper, you will be leading us in our first Havruta of book two. What would you like to discuss?
0: So there's this scene in the chapter after the dueling club and Harry's looking for Justin Finch Fletchley because he's gone off uh, and he wants to apologize and he's looking for him in the library and he sees a group of Hufflepuffs talking and he thinks he might be there. So he goes up to the group and before he starts engaging them in conversation, he just listens in to what they're saying and all the students are really scared of Harry. You know, they're talking about how he might be the heir of Slytherin, how they're going to try and protect themselves against him, what strategies they might need. And it's really hurtful to Harry. He's been super friendly with most of these Hufflepuffs, and suddenly they've turned on him. And so I'm wondering, the question that I'm bringing to our conversation today is, why are we able to change our opinions of others so quickly, for good and bad? You know, we'll see Harry go from hero to zero and back to hero again, not just throughout the series, but just within each book. And I think My potential answer is that it's something to do with the fact that we don't understand the fullness of other people's experience. And we're so good at creating stories about them. And so as soon as we have a new piece of information, we're able to recreate an entire new story, which paints them in a completely different light. But I'm still kind of unsatisfied by that. So what do you think?
1: I I think this is a really interesting moment in the text. And what's interesting to me is that Ernie is making up these stories. Ernie doesn't know Harry. So I think maybe what we can take from the text is that it's easier to have your opinions about somebody sort of constantly be going 180 degrees when you don't know them at all. And then we'll see this same sort of thing happen with Ron and Harry where Ron will hate Harry and then Ron will love Harry and then, you know, and it goes back and forth. And it seems to me when when you're doing those 180 degree turns – In an intimate friendship, it has a lot more to do with you and your own insecurities. Ron gets mad at Harry, not when Harry necessarily does anything wrong, but when it has poked a really sensitive spot within him. Whereas Ernie gets really worried when he has seen something very public happen with a famous person. And I'm just imagining, you know, like that's definitely true for me with famous people. I, you know, was mad at Brad Pitt for leaving Jennifer Aniston, but then he was such a good dad to these kids. And because I don't know him, I'm willing to be like fair weather with Brad Pitt. But certainly if somebody who I already know and am intimate with hurts my feelings, usually it has more to do with them striking a sensitive cord in me than it does with them messing up in some big way.
0: I love this answer because I think it shows up, you know, especially that example with Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, right? Because there's an authority, right? We're reading a magazine, we're listening to something on a podcast or the radio that shapes our opinion. And that happens here in the text as well. When Harry comes up to the group and says, hello, said Harry, I'm looking for Justin Finch Fletchley. The Hufflepuff's worst fears had clearly been confirmed. They all looked fearfully at Ernie. And so Ernie is clearly the lead thought person, you know, about this situation. And, and Hannah Abbott says, you know, well, Harry always seems so nice. He doesn't seem like the heir of Slytherin. And we can just see how quickly our opinions are shaped about people that we don't actually know by a sort of intermediary media establishment, as it were, which is so different, as you say, from intimate relationships where, you know, we can switch from frustration to great love, you know, in a moment, but it's much more to do with ourselves. I think that's really smart.
1: I think to your point about Ernie, I think that he is almost like a media authority in that he, as he says in the text, he's a multi-generational pureblood. And so he doesn't have as much to be scared of in this interaction with Harry. And so because of that, he's... Willing to be brave and state clearly that he thinks that Harry might be the heir of Slytherin. Whereas if there was Muggle-born person saying that, we might discount them as like, well, you're just scared. You're pointing fingers. You're saying this for whatever reason. So the source matters, right? If we read about Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston's breakup from the National Enquirer, we'd be like, oh, well, you have ulterior motives. You're just trying to sell papers. Whereas when we read about it in a more established magazine, their reputation hinges on the fact that they report actual facts. So we trust it more. And so I think that Ernie is taking advantage of his status here, both to be brave and to stand up to Harry, but also to sort of be the news bearer or the analyst because of his position of power.
0: Yeah, this is really calling me to explore, you know, next time I'm changing my mind about something, to really think about who am I being informed by? Because I'm beginning to realize from this passage that I really have to think about that.
1: Well, I find that I will really dislike someone the first time I meet them, and then I'll really like them the second time. Right. And often for me, that's because I'm anxious in new situations. So I don't like anyone the first time I meet them. And so second impressions are how I really know someone. But that is entirely to do with me. So I guess the other question is, when are our impressions about somebody else about us? And when are they actually about them?
0: Yeah. And you can totally imagine that Ernie, you know, is a little jealous.
1: Or at least he's really enjoying being the ringleader in this Hufflepuff thing. And he's a Hufflepuff. He's being loyal to Justin in this moment. But we're also seeing a little Gryffindor in him. And, like, he's being really brave and standing up to Harry. So, yeah, he has his own identity at stake in this situation.
0: Right. Ugh. I didn't think we'd get to such a juicy place. Thanks, Vanessa. Good chavruting.
1: Thank you. Yes, that is the correct Hebrew verb for havruta. <laughs> Excellent. This week's voice memo is from Lori Stevens and is in response to Chapter Seven, Mudbloods and Murmurs. Hello, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Lori
3: and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, in the summer of 2002, less than a year after 9/11, I was 12, the same age as our trio in Chamber of Secrets. My family and I moved to Garden City, Michigan, which is a white working class suburb of Detroit. And I didn't know this at the time, but we were less than like 15 minutes from Dearborn, Michigan, where Arab Americans make up about 44% of the population. Less than a week after my family and I moved to Garden City, a paper bag full of dog crap was placed on our porch and lit on fire. On the cement of the porch, our charming visitors had written in chalk, go home, sand and words Sometime later, my brother and I were at the nearby school playground, The other children wouldn't play with us, and they called us Arabs. I was a 12-year-old Ravenclaw, so I had to correct them on two points. Firstly, it's pronounced Arabic. And secondly, we are Mexican. (laughs) I remember feeling a really confusing swirl of emotions. Relieved and mentally distant because the bullying didn't actually have anything to do with me. Guilty because I was able to say, no, 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 I'm not who you're looking for. Sympathetic for what other kids our age who were Arabic must be going through and really shocked that other kids could think and feel this way so strongly. So I always felt the scene in Hagrid's hut really powerfully because seeing the bigotry I was encountering in real life discussed openly in a book made me feel less alone and a little bit less confused. I had tried to defend myself and my childhood response, like Ron's casting of the slug charm, was imperfect. But as I've gotten older, experiences like these and books like Harry Potter made it clear to me that Muslims and Latinos and other groups share this political moment as this country's scapegoats, and it's not right. We need white allies like Ron, Harry, and Hagrid to show us and each other that we're welcome and inherently worthy. Have a good one.
1: Lori. what I really like about your voicemail is that I feel like post-election, a lot of us have been wondering what to do. We want to be involved and we want to be helping, but we're not sure how. And you just in a lovely invitational way said, we need white allies and we need white friends to be speaking up on behalf of people who are going to be more and more, it seems, scapegoated. So I just appreciate your call for that.
0: And Laurie, I love how Your 12-year-old response was what you had at the time. And as you've grown older, you've complicated that. And we've all learned more about how to respond in those situations. And I think that's also a beautiful invitation to us. You know, if we've been imperfect in our responses before, that we can get better. And so I'm excited to track how our characters do that and how each of us in our Harry Potter and the Sacred Text community can do that in the years to come. Thanks, Laurie. Vanessa, it's time to bless one of our characters. Who are you blessing this week?
1: My blessing this week is for a Slytherin, Millicent Bulstrode. Millicent is a character we get introduced to very quickly in the dueling scene. She gets partnered with Hermione as a dueling partner. And Millicent is being mocked for her size in this chapter. And it's something that happens a lot in the books that I'm not comfortable with. I feel like there's a quote-unquote joke made that, oh, it was awkward for Harry to try to pull Millicent off of Hermione because he was smaller than her, implying that women should be smaller than men or girls should be smaller than boys. And... I just feel like a lot of jokes are made at Millicent's expense in this chapter, and I'm guessing in her life. And so puberty is a really hard thing to go through, and we all develop at different speeds. And I just think it must be really hard to be Millicent and to be bigger than it sounds like a lot of her classmates are. And so my blessing is for people who are feeling insecure about their bodies, especially during times of change. Casper, who would you like to bless this week?
0: My blessing is for Ginny Weasley. She's reacting to these horrible incidents of students and now ghosts being petrified in clear shock. Um, She's having nightmares, we learn. And I can just imagine feeling responsible for something or not even knowing exactly what you've done, but knowing that you're implicated in something, which is totally frightening. And she has no one to talk to about it. So my blessing is for Ginny and anyone who feels like they don't have anyone to talk to about something that's really scaring them, maybe about their own behavior. So know that there are always people who will listen to whatever you need to share, even if it's frightening, whether it's a text helpline, or maybe even friends and family will be more forgiving than you think. So please reach out, because we know that Ginny would have been listened to had she been able to say something. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll read Chapter 12, Polyjuice Potion, through the theme of belonging. Our live show is nearly sold out, so there's only a few weeks left to buy your tickets on January 24th here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Check out our website for more details. This episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, me, Casper kyle and Vanessa Sultan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. Thanks to this week's voicemail sender, Laurie Stevens, Peter Muller for sending us this week's theme, Mark Oppenheimer and the Unorthodox podcast crew for sending in the story and being great Panoply partners. Please do check out their podcast. And thanks also to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you next week.
1: Yes, I'm learning he from could, Harry. He could talk to you more. <laughs> you are the heir of Slytherin. I'm the heir of Slytherin.